0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show. Yeah, that is the bell of an LRT you hear. It looks like Hamilton's LRT is back on track. How much has Canada's love affair with generic drugs hurt us from producing life-saving vaccine? Canada's top spy master says Beijing's military and intelligence services have been gathering sensitive data on Canadians for years and are even harassing Canadian citizens here. We'll tell you the story. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. When it's this cold outside, you may want to stow away a couple of extra masks in your pockets. They work well when you forgot your earmuffs. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! yeah. yeah. Hang on, man! Hang on! Yeah. Hang on! And if you're standing, hang on to that bar. You know, in the love train. Uh, Good afternoon, it is 1209, it is 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, the brilliant Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show, Between the Rails... Yeah. Feel, yeah. Thank you. Uh, feel free to, uh, jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Did the days just not get wackier uh, as we go through this? I mean, unbelievable. Anyway, uh, I'll try to stay between the rails here. All right. Uh, LRT is back into the discussion. No doubt to move our attention away from the fact that we have no COVID nine, uh, COVID 19 vaccine, but who cares? We'll take it anyway. Here's what, uh, CHML's Ken Mann had to say. The province has submitted a revised nine kilometer LRT line from McMaster University to Gage Park for funding through the federal government's Investing in Canada infrastructure program. The estimated total cost of such a project is $2.5 billion. Flamborough-Glanbrook Conservative MPP Donna Skelly says her government is standing by its $1 billion commitment.
1: A billion dollars only builds uh, a few kilometers.
2: In order to make this a viable project, we need another $1.2, $1.5 billion, and that has to come from the federal government. How
0: City Council will respond to a shortened LRT line is another unknown, but Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger says he's cautiously optimistic about getting the project back on track. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. All right, there you have it, Uh, and the discussion is on again. My goodness, as I said in my commentary, if we don't get something built soon, the only thing we'll be able to afford is a little wee one that goes around the park with the kitties on board. Let's bring in Joseph Mancinelli, Leona International Vice President and Regional Manager of Central and Eastern Canada, and is with us now. Joseph, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: I am. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: So your thoughts on where this discussion is as of February 10th. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I'm uh, optimistic, as always, and I've been accused of being worse than optimistic, but uh, I I have a very high level of confidence that this project is going to be built. Um, I have had uh, discussions with uh, provincial officials and federal officials as recent as yesterday, and uh, I think that we're going to have a great LRT that's going to run from McMaster University right through to Stony Creek.
0: So when did you hear that these rumblings were back on, or for you, they've never left?
2: They've never left. I I think that, uh, you know, when the announcement was made uh, last year by uh, Transport Minister Mulroney, um, there was, you know, information that was tabled by the province um, that, you know, quite frankly, had overly inflated uh, the numbers, you know, had... Uh, operating costs and a whole bunch of other stuff in there over the long term that quite frankly had spooked a, a number of folks at the pro- provincial level uh, uh on whether or not you know the project was viable and i think since that time i think folks have, have have had an opportunity to look at uh the viability of the LRT line uh we've had a panel here in the city that got together and analyzed it as well uh, the federal government has been doing it as well, and I think that the stars are are, are aligning uh, where they have uh, looked at the numbers and it's and it's viable. I think what we need to do is is get uh, both levels of government, provincial and federal, uh, to uh, commit uh, their funds to the project, and then have the private sector, which we are a part of uh, with our pension plan, that is anxious to invest in the project as well. And so I think if you get those three groups together, there's no reason why um, this project can't be built. I know that the federal government today just announced another 14 uh, point something billion dollars for uh, transit as well. And so, uh, you know, the funds are there. Uh, all levels of government are looking at shovel ready projects that will stimulate the economy because of the pandemic that we're in. What better way to stimulate the economy than to invest in a multi-billion dollar LRT uh, in the greater Hamilton area.
0: Uh, the pandemic, Joe, a big part of this, as you said, getting back, uh, getting, building infrastructure, people working, this sort of thing. Has this
2: helped the discussion? You know, I think so. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the pandemic has, has forced all levels of government um, that, that something needs to be done In order to stimulate the economy and in fact most economists are are pretty optimistic that when we're in a post pandemic mode um, that we're going to see a boom uh, right across the country and and we need to make it happen it's not going to happen on its own it's going to happen because of projects like the LRT. Um, where the governments and the private sector are going to invest billions of dollars that is going to create economic stimulus not only in our community but in an ex- you know extended to a number of communities right across Ontario in our case uh, because there's supply chain issues you know folks that 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 are going to uh, uh, supply materials to the site as well that are not only in Hamilton, but are outside of the Hamilton area that are going to um, uh, benefit from the LRT being built, the sewers, the fiber optics uh, that are going to be built along the line. And then, of course, the other thing that a lot of folks aren't looking at is the long-term commitment by developers that are going to build uh, condominiums and uh, commercial properties and, and rental properties uh, along the LRT line as well. Uh, which is going to create, uh, additional income for the city and for the province and for the feds when it comes to taxation as well and development fees, et cetera. So, you know, this is a domino effect that'll take place here, uh, post pandemic, um, that, that will stimulate the economy. And then again, uh, my, my members that are going to work on that site and members of, of other unions and other workers that are going to work on the site, when they go home and they get that paycheck, they're going to be buying refrigerators and television sets and stoves and, and cars yeah. and, and everything else. And, and, and so those businesses that sell those products will benefit from it as well. So this is a, a, a domino effect that will have a, a fairly dramatic effect on the economy of not only our city but the province and the country.
0: It seems, Joe, that this, uh, this project was going one direction prior to when, uh, obviously Minister Mulroney came in and, and, and killed the whole thing. It was taking one direction then, and it seems to be taking a different direction after that announcement. And by that, what I mean, and you mentioned this, Joe, the different levels of government that are working on this and the involvement of the private sector, people such as Leuna. Um, why were those discussions not, have in the, not had in the initial uh, phase of all of this? It seems we wouldn't have got to where we are. Why didn't we all start doing this at the beginning?
2: Well, I think that that is a, a uh, interesting question, one that I don't have the answer to. Um, I can you know speculate that you know information improper information was available at that time. Information that now is available that that um, you know highlights the the viability of the project. At that at that time, going back a year or two, I, I think that the politics at that time interfered with with uh, proper decision-making. I I think you just have to look at, you know, city council in Hamilton and how divided it was uh, on the issue of LRT. That didn't help us as well. I mean, if you're a provincial government or a federal government and you're looking at uh, a very soft support for the LRT in Hamilton, I'm not sure I want to give billions of dollars to a community that doesn't want the project anyways. So- Boy,
0: is that is that ever a reality check? Um what about are you concerned about council Joe? Because again, as you mentioned, I can't, you know, my goodness. I remember talking to former Premier Kathleen Wynne about this and her laughing saying, "Yes, it's going to, you know, we're giving you the money for the LRT and still we were we were bickering about it." Are you concerned what what council's going to do with this information?
2: Well, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't concerned. I think, I think that we always should be concerned about politics when it comes to these kind of issues. Um, I, I think we're beyond that though now. And I would hope, I would hope that the city, uh, uh, have embraced the fact that, that we had a referendum on the LRT, uh, which the referendum was very clear that the citizens of Hamilton wanted an LRT. Um, uh, we have a provincial government now that is on side with the LRT. We have a federal government that's on side with the LRT, uh, and, and we have private sector funding that's on side as well. And so, uh, there is really no reason um, for for city council to be reopening any of the old wounds of the past with regards to to uh, light rail. So let's get on with it. Let let's get all levels of government. And the private sector, um, moving forward, we are, and it looks very promising that everyone is moving in the right direction in light of the announcement that was made yesterday by the province that this is a high priority project. And the federal government's announcement today uh, of the fourteen plus billion dollars for for transit. So I, I have a high level of confidence that we're beyond that point. But politics being politics, yes. Am I concerned? Absolutely. I, I, I would never diminish my concern about the politics politics surrounding this project. What about
0: the changes in the route, Joe? Uh, we've obviously got a smaller version here going from Mack to Gage Park as opposed to Eastgate Square. Um, the longer we debate this, the shorter it gets?
2: Uh, I, I, I don't think that that is the LRT line. I think that, that what the province has said is that there are phases to this project that are, are dependent on the commitment to funding. And so um, we have never veered uh, from the original project, which is from McMaster University to Stony Creek. Anything less is not viable. And I think that, that the province said that in their comments yesterday, um that uh, the 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 only viable solution here is to go right to Stony Creek but what they did say that it depends on the funding so what what they said is that if the province committed only a billion dollars and no one else committed any money to the project the only thing that could be done was to build an LRT to, to Gage Park that's what they're saying they're not saying that that is the new project and so, if you take federal dollars, which we hope are coming to the project, and then you insert the private sector funding investment into the project, the project must be from McMaster University of Stony Creek.
0: Uh, on the construction side of this, Joe, how does it get built in sections? Do they start at each end, work to the middle, work, go from the middle, work out? How do they do this? Uh, how will this so, obviously envelop the city?
2: So my understanding is that uh, if we can look at it in in a phased in approach, it would start at McMaster University to downtown would be, um, you know, where it would start and then continue going east uh, all the way to, to Stony Creek. So. Um, you know, the first level of disruption, if I can put it that way, because folks do look at it that way, would be from McMaster to downtown. And while we're doing that, you know, the rest of the uh, engineering and and uh, any kind of expropriations and anything else that need to take place um, would take place during that period of time in order to commit to the rest of the line that goes all the way down to Stony Creek. So um, it would start at the western part of the city and move east.
0: Uh, how much uh, has this delay costed us? And obviously, you can't give me a figure on that. But, but um, you know, are we starting from scratch again? Um, is it a case of, of taking over where we left off? How much does this stoppage disrupt the project? I,
2: I think that this is still a shovel-ready uh, project, probably one of the uh, most shovel-ready projects in the country, actually, because, you know, we we had gone out to tender um, up to a year ago. A lot of engineering has been done. Um, The project is basically ready to go. There's no question about it that this is probably one of the the most shovel-ready projects in the country. As far as costs go, I I think those clearly have to be uh, renewed uh, because, you know, the pandemic has created some some cost factors as well. When the sh- supply chain and, you know, num- number of supply uh, chain items have gone up in price as well. And so we really do have to, you know, look at cost again uh, within the envelope of, of, of money that's available, obviously. Um, but, you know, certain things have gone up. And so we really have to look at that again. But that's not an onerous Uh, Exercise. I mean, those are things that can be done very quickly. Um, Getting companies to to bid on this work can be done, you know, fairly quickly as well. So look at, yes, we need to make up some time because we did lose a year uh, here of construction. Um, But it can't be any better time to do it because we've got a pandemic. If we would have started a year ago, there would have been disruptions anyways because of COVID-19. Um, I, I think that you know it's timely now. We're 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 going into a period of post pandemic, hopefully, uh, because of the uh, um, uh, medication that's available and, and 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 all of the progress that's being made and numbers that are coming down. So I think that if we go through an exercise for the next several months of getting this project uh, bid and then and then getting a shovel in the ground sometime probably early next year. I think that's timely because, you know, at that time, you know, COVID should be hopefully uh, behind mm-hmm. us to a degree and we'd be moving in the right direction to start construction.
0: Last question, Joe. Uh, the cost to Hamilton taxpayers, that's always been a concern, especially with the councillors. Anything to to add to that?
2: Well, I, I think that this new formula that's being discussed between the provincial government, the federal government and the private sector uh, I think bodes well for the city of Hamilton uh, and, and for taxation as well. The costs that are associated with uh, or for uh, citizens of Hamilton would be operating costs in the future on operating the line and and, uh, um, and keeping the line going. Otherwise, the construction costs, um, uh, the way that the project looks like right now, Uh, will the burden will be on the two levels of government, federal, provincial and the private sector. So as far as Hamilton taxpayers, and I happen to be one of them, uh, I think that we have minimized now the exposure uh, uh, for the LRT to, you know, to to be a burden on taxpayers in Hamilton. So the waiting game, I think, has helped in that respect um, so that, you know, Hamilton taxpayers are not going to be burdened with it as much as they were initially uh, two years ago.
1: Hmm,
0: The time is right. Joe Mancinelli with his UN International Vice President and Regional Manager, Central and Eastern Canada. Joe, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well. Thank you. Pleasure. Here is today's daily commentary. Clang, clang, clang goes the bell of the LRT once again. Well, why not? Anything to take our minds off the fact we have no COVID-19 vaccine to jab Canadians with this week. So I'm on board. Who's in or on? Word has come down this week from the province that LRT is back on the rails and the hammer. Remember, LRT came to a grinding halt when the provincial government pulled the plug, saying it was more expensive than originally estimated by the previous provincial government. A study that followed confirmed that, along with the Auditor General, who said the numbers were significantly understated. Now a shorter LRT would run between McMaster and Gage Park, with the province contributing $1 billion and the federal government $1.5 billion. Why that plan wasn't thought of a couple of governments ago is beyond me. However, while the governments decide what to do, Hamiltonians wait at the station. If this LRT does not get built soon, the only train we'll be able to afford is one for the kiddies that goes around in circles through the park. I'm Scott Thompson. Has the demand by Canada for generic drugs driven big pharma out of this country? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for uh, being flexible with us today. Uh, weird day here in the Hammer. Thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. So I'll get right to it, uh, Ian, uh, obviously still waiting on vaccine to arrive in this country, uh, not much more to, to report on that front. Uh, the prime minister, uh, of course, blaming a lack of production on past prime ministers, yet we're just, you know, signing, uh, U.S. deals now for production with companies like InnovaVax. Uh, since then, I've heard many stories of drug companies that have tried uh, to to talk to the government and and try to do business in Canada, and they're basically getting um, the door shut or or no, right. no communication. Uh, Diane Francis did an interesting article on this in the Financial Post. Um, but but it got to me thinking about all of a sudden the, the the term generic drugs came up, and and we certainly know that Canada has been on a battle uh, to try to drive the the cost of of big pharma drugs down, and we can certainly see the reasoning for that. But is, can you explain or shed any light onto our relationship or lack thereof with our government and big pharma? And is there any correlation with the whole generic industry?
1: Um, yes and no. And before we get into this, because I realize how controversial it is and it's become very politicized with you know people like the leaders of the NDP uh, demonizing drug companies. I do not consult. Never have. Never have. I'm 67. Never have consulted directly or indirectly to any drug or health or any company of any kind whatsoever and I have no investments in them. Uh, I obviously am a customer because I'm older so I have prescriptions because when you get older there's you know your body's wearing out and you have to take prescription drugs from time to time. Um, So with that said I, I have studied this industry I've used it in my class a lot Uh, over the years. In fact, I have two different students doing uh, studies, groups are doing studies right now on on this. It's a fascinating industry, huge amounts of data. I'll get right to the point. Uh, And I'm not talking the generic industry, drug industry. I'm talking the so-called pharmaceutical research industry, uh, in plain English, the branded drugs, the prescription drugs that are still under patent. They're a completely different industry, from the generic, and there's case studies in the Harvard Business School on this, and the University of Western Ontario Business School. The, the drug industry, and I'm talking the research drug industry, the Pfizer's, the, uh, these huge companies, the Modernas that do research, okay, are, are phenomenally, they, they make a lot of money? Sure they do. Uh, there's no question about that. It's also massively capital-intensive and massively research and development-intensive. The Food and Drug Administration in the United States keeps uh, that's the regulatory police in the states uh, estimate that uh, somewhere around two or three drugs out of a hundred that start out at the very beginning only two or three ultimately go to market because they fall off as they go through the pipeline and they get uh, rejected because they don't pass particular tests as they go through so it has an incredibly high failure rate and the last figure i saw is to bring one new drug to market in the States, this is American data, is over $2 billion for one drug. Now, I know we're talking, we're in a moment, we're going to talk about vaccines, but the, the process is very similar. You've got to hire enormous thousands and thousands of people with PhDs in biochemistry and chemistry and physics and molecular biology and all this stuff. These are very expensive people, highly trained people. And it's really expensive, and there's very high risk. If only two or three products out of 100 are succeeding, that means 95, 96, 97 are failing, and yet you still have to pay for every one of those failures. So it's a high-risk business. So where am I going with this? This is an industry that says, gee whiz, we can put our plant, our, our, our investment, our, our uh, a subsidiary in any country, really, in the world. Uh, if we so wish, or at least in the Western world, let's, let's limit it. There's 34 countries in the OECD, the high-income Western wealthy countries. And then they look o- over them, and this is what I teach in my class, is they look and do a country risk analysis. And they look at things like the taxation level, uh, the regulatory degree, how, how heavily regulated is it, how uh, supportive... Of investment is the government, and so on. And this has become a very almost a science in itself in uh, in country selection by big companies, multinationals. So,
0: how accommodating are we to these companies?
1: I'm going now to <laughs> be very blunt. Um, I think that we have slowly um, and more uh, rapidly in the last few years uh, developed a reputation for being um, not so friendly. Uh, I don't want to get carried away and say we're hostile to investment because we're not, but we put so many restrictions, so caveats, conditions on it, that these huge, and these are huge drug companies, let's be clear, that they have choices. They can say, hey, you know what? I don't like what you're offering me. I'm going to go to the States. I'm going to go to Germany. I'm going to go to France. I'm going to go to Switzerland. And they can, and they do.
0: How has that that changed the vaccination discussion? Has that hindered us? Is that why we are where we are?
1: I, I believe that it's a major contributor that when you're a small country like Canada, and I know what people like to think, we're this gigantic country, but we're smaller than the state of California. We're only 38 million. We're a small country. France is 60 million. Germany is 80 million. You know, UK is 60 million. America's 330 million. We're small potatoes. So sorry, Canadians that are offended by that. I speak truth to power. I look at the data from Stats Canada, the population data. So the pharmaceutical company is saying, gee whiz, this is a small market, and it is a small market, 38 million people. And we have a government that wants to, that regulates the price of pharmaceutical products, including vaccines, which is not, does not occur in these other countries, such as the States. And then we have a government that says, okay, if you come here, you're going to have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and and that, or you can't come here. So they say, you know what? We don't like your offer. I can go somewhere else. I'm like a free agent in the NFL that's a superstar. I can go to another team that wants me more and is going to pay more or make it more hospitable and more attractive. So I think we've shot ourselves in the foot. With our rhetoric, that's that's anti some politicians that are anti pharmaceutical companies, and we've created a an investment climate that is simply not attractive enough to get them to come here.
0: And Why are we, we not people- talking about this more, Ian? Why is this not in the
1: forefront more? I don't know. I I truly, you're really talking about the court of public opinion and our fellow Canadians. Um, I I think it resonates. There's certainly, I I can tell you, I'm in the university. I know this. There's a certain number of Canadians that just loathe pharmaceutical companies. They're big, they're wealthy, they make a lot of money, they're American, they save lives. Uh, yeah, and they, and so I think there's a, it resonates with a good, I don't know, thirty percent. If you look at the public opinion polls, some people can argue with me and say no, it's twenty-seven or thirty-three. I think about a third of Canadians are are very uh, are comfortable with a, a message that's very hostile, or critical, and uh, and then there's you know probably another third that's indifferent um, because they just don't think about it. It's not something that's high on their agenda of worries. Uh, uh, you know and then you have another third that's maybe much more pro business from the business community and so it's a it's uh, you know it's hmm. it's it's a saw off it's a, and, and so there isn't a uh and most of the time we don't, I mean, we don't have pandemics. It's not something that's yeah. a routine.
0: It'll be inter- It'll be interesting to see if this changes our opinion on all of that. Yeah. We got to run, Ian. We're fresh out of time. Thanks so much for fitting in here, Ian. We appreciate it. Ian Lee, Sprott School that's of fun. Business, Carleton University, talking about the generic drug business and how it has hindered our chances at a vaccine. Governments don't make vaccine. Private companies do. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. After a vote on whether or not the constitutional merits existed to allow the trial to advance, House impeachment managers will look backwards in time to prove their case that Donald Trump's rhetoric leading up to and following the election ginned up his supporters and that his words spoken on January 6th incited the riots by an emotionally charged base but it's an uphill climb. Only six Republicans joined Democrats on Tuesday, criticizing the Trump defense as disorganized. Eleven more would be needed for a conviction, and it highlights a central truth, fear inside the party of crossing Trump and the wrath that could end one's political future. But Democrats are fearful that without accountability, it opens the door to any president in the future acting at will without consequence. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Obviously, down in the United States, the uh, impeachment trial of Donald Trump continues. Uh, Many are saying that uh, you can impeach a president uh, after he is out of office. Others have said that uh, you can't just leave and on the way out set fire to the place and not be held accountable for what happens. Let's bring in Dr. Graham Dodds, a Concordia University professor and associate chair, Department of Political Science, and is with us now. Graham, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well
3: doing fine glad to be with you.
0: Uh, give us a little bit of update a little bit of an update on where we are today. Uh, I guess reports from yesterday say say that Trump's uh, legal team was a little flat-footed, uh that he was angry with uh the performance of uh, at least one of his lawyers. Uh your thoughts on yesterday and today versus today.
3: Yeah, yeah. So yesterday uh the early going of this thing there were sort of uh, some logistical uh, preliminaries and also a vote on whether it was appropriate to proceed. Uh there been questions, as you just noted, about whether it's appropriate or uh, uh, constitutional, even to try to uh, impeach, convict a president who's no longer in office. And uh, yesterday, Trump's lawyers uh, uh, argued about this, and by all accounts, they did a very poor job. And uh, I think that's not altogether surprising because Trump could not find a lot of very good lawyers to take up his case. The usual people who would do so wanted uh not to touch it with a ten foot pole. They wanted nothing to do with it. They would not go on record as supporting this president and what he did. Um Trump got a team and then they resigned at the last minute, so the folks who did this yesterday were kind of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. And uh, you know, Kelsey Prize, they didn't do such a great job. Now, today it sort of moved uh to the real um start of this thing where we're gonna get a couple days of the uh House managers presenting the case against Trump. Uh, Trump's lawyers, such as they are, will then have a couple days to rebut those arguments. And probably sometime early next week, there will be a vote on uh, whether the Senate is going to convict former President Trump.
0: So, uh, what does this say about his case when it appears weak on the first day? Yet many are saying this. This will never. uh, The chances of it making its way to impeachment are quite slim because of the Republican vote. But what does it say about uh, his case moving forward? Will that will that reflect his case in any way? Will that change the outcome? The Um, fact that the representation isn't as strong as it has been.
3: It might. It might. I mean, he does not have the best lawyers presenting his case. Um I think they will do a better job uh going forward than they did the last day or so nevertheless um Trump's defense is not going to be what it perhaps uh, could be and um you know even if he had the best team going forward what is he going to say that it's inappropriate for him to be uh in, under consideration in as he's out of office well they've already sort of passed that hurdle and then it's well on the merits um did he incite this riot did he prompt this insurrection And uh, in his uh, sort of telling or that of his lawyers, no, it's free speech. He could, uh, you know, uh, embrace and use all sorts of uh, crazy rhetoric, but that doesn't mean he was necessarily saying, let's go down there, engage in violence, and try to uh, forcibly overturn the government. Um, So, you know, the other side is going to try to make that case. Well, no, that's exactly what you were doing, and indeed... Um, the manager who was just making the case until recently, uh, Representative Castro, said this was by design. He was saying months before the election and ever since the election that the only way he could lose is if it were stolen, and if it were stolen, people should go to D.C. on the sixth and do what had to be done. Um, at the end of the day, I guess the question is, is it going to change any minds? And you know, with a 50-50 Senate to get two-thirds needed to convict, 17 Republicans will have to vote against. Their former president, and it's not clear that's going to happen.
0: So, uh, and you sort of answered my next question: Does it matter how strong or weak uh, Donald Trump's case is if if the if the Republicans vote not to impeach him anyway? Does he have to do anything?
3: Yeah, I think he sort of thinks he doesn't, and even though he's not getting the the best sort of uh, legal uh, defense possible, I think in his view and those of uh, that of others, it it might just not matter. I mean, again, there would have to be seventeen Republicans who vote to convict. Their former presidents. Thus far, only six seem open to that possibility. So, what are the odds that anything the House managers could say or do in the next uh, day or so are going to change the minds of 11 sitting Republican senators? Um, They might get another couple, but I do think it's unlikely they'll get enough votes to uh, convict the president. And then I guess the question is, well, what's the point anyway? And I think there are kind of two ways to go with that. You can say they should do it, it's on the merits, he has to be held accountable and then there's politics and again the first one is uh, think of it as analogous to a criminal proceeding where you're indicted and then uh... tried and trump has been if you follow that analogy indicted now it's up to the senate to try him you can think of instances where a prosecutor would choose to bring a case to court even if he felt there were long odds against gaining a conviction perhaps because he thought it was the right thing to do or it would shake Mm. something else loose or it would set a marker in the future So I think there are reasons for going ahead on the merits. But if you want to be cynical, you could say, look, this is Democrats just trying to embarrass the former president and embarrass his enablers in the Senate. They want to get Republican senators on record as defending the undefendable so that they'll be uh, more vulnerable in the next election.
0: You know, that seems very viable to me, what you said, the last thing you said, in the sense that um you know there's there's a lot of republican senators here are playing both sides of the fence and i'm not sure that all republicans uh, see that as the future of their republican party so uh could this backfire in the sense that the you know a weak a weak defense from from donald trump and then a you know some sort of convincing presenta- uh, presentation from uh the democrats could this could you see this changing
3: I could, and I think the determination for a lot of these sitting Republican senators is not so much on the merits. Did Trump was what what, what he did uh, defensible? Was it inexcusable? Does it rise to the level of impeachment? I think rather their their calculation is a little bit more uh, self centered, more selfish. It's their political survival. And I mean, the Republican Party in general, we've talked about this before, is engaged in something of a civil war right now. Is it still Donald Trump's party? Will it be his party going forward or? Um, Are there enough Republicans to try to assert control over their party and regain it from what it became under Donald Trump? And I think there's a real conflict in that regard. And a number of senators who are going to decide Trump's fate, that's the calculation going through their mind. Are we better staying with this guy in our corner? Uh, We don't want to anger the former president. Or are they going to say, no, enough's enough. Time to turn the page. Um, He's out. We're in charge. And I, I just don't know how that's going to shake out
0: whatever your politics are and of course i'm speaking you know on this from a canadian perspective uh, as a true centrist but you know are the republicans not asking themselves at this point is this the kind of republican party that we want is do we want more donald trump or do we want to get back to um. You, you know, I mean, there's lots of people that voted for the Republicans because they believe in their policy, but isn't there a nice Republican out there that can convey their policies without insulting the rest of the world and generally creating hell that doesn't need to be created? Yeah. Uh, it, like, again, I, I can't imagine the Republicans moving forward and dragging this ball and chain with them.
3: Um, I agree with you, and I think that's sort of Mitch McConnell's view, the uh, minority leader of the Senate, the lead Republican in the Senate. I think he would very much like to uh, get rid of Trump and sort of reassert uh, reason and control of America's center-right party. And um, I think that's how he sees it. But I'm not sure everybody else does. I think a lot of Republicans are still really worried about angering Trump. They're still uh, concerned that it's his party, and if they run afoul of him, uh, you know, they're going to face a challenger in the next election, uh, in the primary, let alone the general election. So, this is a big debate Republicans are having. And again, I think their calculation is very self centered. And Mitch McConnell is a key one to look at. He bit his tongue until very late in Donald Trump's four year presidency. And only Mm. then did he uh, sort of unleash criticisms. And, you know, perhaps it was only the fact of uh, (laughs) losing those two uh, Senate seats in Georgia and therefore the Republican majority that finally flipped him. Um, I just don't know. I think there are a lot of Republicans who are embarrassed by Trump, who've always been embarrassed. But been embarrassed by Trump, but bit their tongue, and now they're not. There's data today showing that uh, party registration is turning strongly against Republicans because a lot of centrist people and conservative people are just embarrassed by Donald Trump, and they don't want to be in the party of Donald Trump. Um, this is a heck of a thing Republicans have to figure out. You know, you better off with this guy, or you're better off without him, and uh, they're conflicted about it.
0: Um, let's say that the Republican Party decides to go with Trump. They decide to, that's the direction they want to go with the party, whether it's with him, but certainly his, his sense of of style and and, and what he does. Will that make this uh, a fringe, more of a fringe party? Because you have to think even Republicans would have saw what happened on January 6th and said, that's not me. Um so uh, again, if that party does splinter, you're looking at uh, Democrat dominance for like a decade, aren't you?
3: Perhaps I mean, look, America has always been a two party country, and you know the parties change, they evolve over time. Um, but you 're not for long going to have one party dominance, so even if the Republican Party were to splinter, I think it would sort itself out in short order. Now, maybe enough for Democrats to reap the gains for a few elections before that occurs. Um, I mean I, I take your point, and it does seem odd that Republicans would still embrace Trump as their leader, but you know he has a very committed base, and I think a lot of Republicans are worried that they don 't stand a chance of winning a lot of elections if that Trump base is alienated if the what, 30% of Republicans who are squarely still on Team Trump uh, get angry and stay home and don't vote. Republicans are going to lose an awful lot of elections going forward.
0: Uh, so um, am I too naive to think that there's a Republican out there that become, can become a candidate by not picking up the brand of Trump? That I mean, many people thought that, uh, you know, if Donald Trump had just kept his mouth shut, he would have been fine through all of this, and, and many liked his... His way of doing politics, especially when it came to people like China and holding them to account, but that kind of went out the window every time he he blew another one of his toes off, which seemed to happen on a daily basis. If you're a strong up and coming Republican uh, in the party, you got to think, hey, I'm better than this guy. Can't it, like, is there not someone else in the party who can do a better job? than donald trump i mean my first reaction is is that the best that you got not disagreeing with the policy perhaps but just the the divisiveness i mean here's a man who tries to win elections by dividing people i mean any you know anybody's read anything about him it's it's even with his own executives he divides and conquers well you can't win an election by continually dividing people and let's be honest he started with what he did and then he lost the the, the the house and and then the election and the senate and and he's divided everybody he's even divided the republican party so again just with that philosophy alone how can you possibly win
3: it's a good question i mean there have to be a few republicans of the sort you've just described who are inclined to step forward um, I don't know at the presidential level, but in Congress, one could point to uh, Liz Cheney, the daughter of the former uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, who is the number three Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives, and she has been unapologetically critical of uh, Donald Trump. And you know, she's rare in that regard, and she's gotten a lot of flack from her colleagues and the folks back home. But clearly, she has made the calculation that uh, Trump is not going to be around forever, and I just can't stomach him, so I'm going to go out there, and if. The chips uh, fall on my. You know, maybe it's a bet that's going to pay off for her, and she's going to rise to prominence down the road. Um, at the presidential level, people you would look to to be uh, candidates for this sort of thing. Nobody just yet. I mean, maybe Mitt Romney, who of course ran against uh, Obama unsuccessfully, he's been one of the rare folks to be critical of Trump. I'm sure he would love to have Trump gone and regain some reason in the party. But uh, there's just not a lot of folks yet who are going to do that. And Again, look, Trump won in 2016, and he got over 70 million people to vote for him this last time. There's something about him that appeals to a lot of people enough to make him competitive in certain elections.
0: Uh, Obviously, there are a lot of people uh, in the United States who are disenfranchised. Can Biden unite
3: them? Uh yeah this is a big uh, question going forward. I mean Biden keeps talking the talk. Um, hardly a sentence comes out of his mouth without the word unity in it somewhere. And um I think temperamentally he sort of gives off that vibe as well. He is by all accounts a nice fellow who plays well with the other team, but um it's a tall order. America is a very divided place as I think we're all aware. And, um, even when there are areas that the parties agree on and can perhaps you know find room for compromise and agreement and go forward, it's just so difficult right now um i i I don't know I mean, I think at a minimum uh Biden has sort of got to get past this whole impeachment in broleo, and you know obviously everyone is focused on this right now rather than on what the new president is trying to do. I think from Biden's perspective, he has to hope that this ends one way or another soon, and then Um, He and his team can make progress. I should say that in terms of uh, a big response to uh, the pandemic and the economic downturn, uh, a number of Republicans did take Biden up on his invitation to compromise and put out a plan. Biden thought it was not enough, and it may well be that Democrats just forced something through on a party-line vote. That's going to further alienate Republicans, including perhaps some of those moderates who were willing to play ball. Um, It's a tall order. It's a tall order to solve all of America's many problems right now and unite the country.
0: You know, I I sense before the election and certainly before COVID, uh, the people are just kind of, I'm tired of hearing from this guy. I mean, we used to always complain that we never hear from politicians and never talk to us. They're not transparent. Yet you hear from this guy every single hour. Uh, You even saw the sense of relief when Biden took over and his his press secretary came out. Um, You know, just a sense of relief from the insanity and the day-to-day action that would, would that would constantly go on Do americans want to hear from the president every hour every day
3: <laughs> you know i study it for a living and i don't want to hear that so i would think that regular <laughs> folks would not either honestly
0: i'd wake up in the morning and i'd look at my phone and the first tweet was from donald trump and it, yep. uh, some, somewhere in the middle of the night it's bizarre
3: yeah. I will tell you, I've spoken with a journalist who will remain unnamed who has said, gee, it seems so boring now. I'm used to 10 crazy scandals every single day, and now we've yeah. got nothing. What's the next big thing to come here? So it, it's a different sort of game. I think we forget how different things were pre-Trump. We've become used to the last four years as if they were normal, and they were not normal. They were crazy. They were an utter aberration. So in some sense, things will get back to normal. I don't think we'll have Joe Biden issuing 10 incendiary treats, tweets every day and then and, and lying five times before lunch. Um, so it'll be, I think, refreshing to get back to that sense of normality. But in terms of uh, uniting the country and sort of getting civil discourse back and making it possible for people who disagree to be amicable, well, that's going to be a longer term project.
0: You know, you said something interesting, Graham. You said they're crazy. Um... You have to think at some point during this impeachment trial, someone stands up and says, this is crazy.
3: Yeah, um, you know, this is the, the, the post-Trumpian world that we're in, where one branch of the federal government could attack another branch and uh, maybe get away with it. Um, it's a crazy sort of era, and I, I think a lot of people, including uh, Republicans, would like to get back to normalcy or something a little bit more normal, if that's possible, um, but it's it's a tall order, and uh, you know, there's still this business of uh, figuring out what to do with the former president now in the new president's second month in office. So uh, Trump is uh, a gift that keeps giving, one way or another.
0: Graham, will we be talking? Will we be talking about Donald Trump one year from now?
3: Boy, it's hard to say. I I really thought he would fade into obscurity, and he has been, at least by his own standards, relatively quiet. Actually, ever since the election, or certainly since the yeah. attack on the Capitol. People say this might be a plan, however, and that once impeachment plays out, he will be back in one way or another. But, look, he's been deplatformed. He doesn't have Twitter anymore to mouth off ten times a day. So even if that is his plan, I don't know exactly what form that's going to take.
0: Dr. Graham Dodds has been with us, Concordia University professor and associate chair, Department of Political Science. Always fascinating, Graham. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's top spymaster says Beijing's military and intelligence services have been gathering sensitive data on Canadians and warned they are stealing technology and attempting to intimidate Canadians. From mainland China, in a speech to the Center for International Governance Innovation on Tuesday, Canadian Security Intelligence Service Director said China poses a serious strategic threat to this country. So says Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail, and the current column is Canadian Spy Chief Calls China Strategic Threat. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thanks. Good to be here. Boy, we certainly are hearing more and more about this uh, discussion. How has China been uh, gathering sensitive data from Canadians? Give us, uh, How does this work?
4: Well, the, uh, the message we're hearing from the uh, director of CSIS, David Vigneault, he's the current director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, we've been hearing this louder and louder from him over the last year. Uh, he's talking about both um, espionage that is hacking into cyber espionage hacking into computer systems as well as uh, data scraping he's talking about uh, um, cyber espionage against art companies uh, particularly in in cutting edge sectors like biopharma or uh, artificial intelligence quantum computing He's talking also about bulk data collection, where companies just go and try to find out everything they can about you. He, In the report that Mr. Vigneault, the speech he made yesterday, he talked uh, about a, a, an array of threats, but he only named or identified one country's actions. And that was China's. He talked about um, this company in Shenzhen, which has been scraping uh information as much as they can about two two and a half um uh million people around the world. Um uh, but he said some of that information there's no way they could have gotten or built those profiles using public information they had to have uh they had to have hacked into people's to to sensitive systems to get it. Um,
0: obviously, we have looked at China as the golden goose for years, for decades now. They already invest heavily in our technology, our education system, our healthcare systems. Are they not already too interwoven into Canadian society to turn this around?
4: Well, they are a major investor, but um, there are... Uh, certain areas where they're not allowed to invest. Uh, the government has control over, for instance, any efforts by the Canadian, uh, by state-owned companies in China to invest in, you know, what we consider sensitive sectors. Like, for instance, just uh, a couple months ago, the Canadian government blocked an attempt by a state-owned uh, company to buy an, Ar- an Arctic gold mine. So. They, ha- they have they uh, have investments in some sectors, but they have like for instance the oil patch. But they've been restricted by the government for for, for making any further investment in the oil patch, uh, the oil sands, and they've also been blocked whenever it comes to uh, what God- Ottawa deems a sensitive sector. Like for instance, a couple of years ago, a state-owned enterprise wanted to buy uh, a major construction company in Canada, which was doing refurbs of uh, Ontario Hydro buildings.
0: So uh, you know, obviously concerned about sensitive areas like that. Yet on the other hand, the prime minister makes a deal with CanSino, a Chinese company, regarding vaccine. Is that not pretty sensitive?
4: That was there was no money in exchange in that. That was just a, a collaboration agreement between the NRC and CanSino, which of course has totally gone off the rails. I think as we've discussed before. So in that case, um, they those two organizations, the, the Chinese company CanSino, which of course is. Founded by a man who worked in Canada for 30 years and the National Research Council, they had a history going back where they'd also worked on Ebola vaccines and stuff. So, that, that, that particular initiative, which was launched in May and then sort of crashed and burned in August, uh, d- didn't actually involve any money, uh, as far as we can tell from the Canadian government. So, are Canadians,
0: uh, are Chinese Canadians being harassed by their home country here in Canada?
4: yeah that's a that's a another uh that's another point that the CSIS director made he was talking about um the uh, an organ an, an exercise that the Chinese government launched many years ago that was supposed to be an exercise operation fox hunt to try to repatriate fugitives criminals and so on but it's turned into it's turned into basically an an exercise to intimidate dissidents and we Many of the people who are targets of, of of the Chinese state are citizens who've moved here from China, mainland Chinese citizens, but also people who wouldn't like to be called uh, Chinese citizens, Uyghurs, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, hmm. a lot of people who come from areas that have been at one time controlled by China or are still controlled by China. But yes, there is um, a major concern that the CSIS director began to mention last November and then mentioned in his speech yesterday that that China is basically extending its intimidation into Canada. Um, he didn't discuss this in the speech yesterday, but this is, includes, for instance, sending agents to people's doors to intimidate them or using their relatives. For instance, mm-hmm. if there's someone over here who emigrated from China, uh, and they will go and harass and pressure their relatives in China to force the people in Canada to change their behavior, change their conduct, or even come home, come back. Uh, and, and then another way that happens, of course, and we've been, uh, this has been discussed with us by former, uh, CSIS officials is Chinese authorities will schedule visits in Canada ostensibly to meet with, for instance, the Attorney General, or the Justice Department, or Global Affairs, but they'll stagger these meetings like a week apart. And then in between those meetings, they'll go and, and, and tend to their own business by visiting people's off houses here. <laughs> And intimidating them. So yes, that's a major concern. And again, China is the only country that Mr. that Csis has identified as being as doing that.
0: Is there any sort of recourse for Canadian Chinese immigrants that are here and are being harassed by uh, the Chinese Communist Party?
4: That's a good question. Uh, we had we had a debate about this in the in the Parliament last fall after the Globe Mill uh, broke a story with Csis warning about this, and the government said, well, you can just call the RCMP. But there has been a concerted um, series of reports by human rights groups in Canada that say that there is no recourse. They're told often to call CSIS, or sorry, to call the RCMP, but then they're referred back to their local police force, who then refers them back to the RCMP. So they're getting the runaround, and many human rights groups, including Amnesty International, have asked for Canada to set up a 1-800-line and also to um, to put more effort into this. We, we can't tell yet if those recommendations have, have yielded any results, if the government is doing more than just asking people to call their local police or call CSIS. Hmm.
0: Stephen Chase has been with us, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. Canadian spy chief calls China strategic threat is his latest. Stephen, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be
4: well. You're welcome. Take care.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.